Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities, Episode 6. Today we are discussing the film The Mosquito Coast, starring Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, and River Phoenix. This movie was directed by Peter Weir and was released in 1986. I'm your host, Harry. And I am your co-host, Jeff. Jeff, this was one of the movies we mentioned or I mentioned in our first ever podcast. It was a film that I watched when I was a kid and had vague memories about. The one thing I did remember was I really didn't enjoy it, probably because I didn't understand it. I think you mentioned you hadn't seen this one before. Uh, is that true? Yeah, that's correct. I had never seen it. Uh, I've been aware of it over the years, but always slipped under the radar for me. Oh, so this will be interesting. It'll be good for us to dissect something, uh, especially something that one of us hasn't seen before, and, and I hadn't seen it in quite a long time and didn't remember a lot of the details. So It'll be interesting. It'll be it should be a fun discussion. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot going on here, man. I'm I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> yeah, there is there is some stuff going on. Uh, we'll see we'll see what goes on. So, do you want me to just get right down into the plot summary here? Yeah, it's all yours, man. Okay. So, Ali Fox, played by Harrison Ford, is a brilliant inventor. After failing to impress his farming employer about a new cooling system he created, his frustrations with his employer. And the state of society in America causes him to relocate his wife and children to a desolate rainforest area in Honduras, also known as the Mosquito Coast, so they can recreate and mold an impoverished small town called Geronimo to a society that he believes in. As they make their way to the Mosquito Coast via a cargo ship, Ali and his family meet a Christian missionary and his wife. It's quite clear that Ali and the Reverend do not get along at all, as they have opposite opinions about religion and faith. As they dock near the Mosquito Coast, both families go their separate ways, and Allie hires a local boatman named Mr. Hattie to take his family upriver to Geronimo. Upon arriving at Geronimo, a town that Allie had bought, Allie's wife and kids are disheartened to see the impoverished town only being a handful of broken huts and inhabitants, but Allie is thrilled to start from scratch. Over time, with the help of the town's inhabitants, they start to build up the town, reinforce the huts for better living conditions, and create vibrant vegetable gardens and a fishing fishery area for food. Everyone seems happy of their accomplishments, but is Ali truly happy? He seems to be in a continuous spin of frustration, still reeling about the state of America, expressing his frustration to the locals who can't possibly understand what he is talking about. He even goes as far and tells his family that America is blown up in a nuclear war. Eventually, Ali turns his attention to his cooling invention, as he wants to create ice from fire, as he calls it. Instead of the small-scale model he built earlier in the film, he now creates a full-sized cooling machine, as big as two barns stacked on top of each other. As he brings in the chemicals needed to make this work, the inhabitants start to get worried. But their fears are soon gone, as Ali starts the machine and creates ice, the first time anyone in this area has seen it. Now the town has makeshift air conditioning in their huts and enough ice to keep their food from rotting. All is well, except Ali still isn't satisfied. To him, these locals in Geronimo are taking his ice for granted. So he sets off way inland to even a more desolate area, bringing ice with him so he can impress tribal people. Because to them, ice will not be taken for granted. It will be a jewel to them, according to Ali. However, after a couple of days hike in the forest, 
Ali finds himself with no ice to show these tribespeople, as it has melted. But he did find people apparently being held hostage by the tribe. After telling the apparent hostages where their town is, they head back to Geronimo. A few days later, these hostages show up to Geronimo, but with guns. These are not hostages, but three militants who seem to leech off people in this area, forcing themselves onto others as there is no law here. Ali and his family soon realize they are here to stay and are worried for their safety. Ali then lures them to sleep in the cooling machine barn, tricking them into thinking it's their own fancy house and bedrooms in Geronimo. With his son Charlie's help, they trap the militants in the cooling machine and turn it on hoping it will quickly freeze them a quick, a painless death. However, the militants start shooting up the machine from the inside, igniting the ammonia used to make the cooling machine work, and the machine blows up, and the gas, unfortunately, ignites the entire town of Geronimo in fire, destroying all homes. Forced downstream, Ali and his family arrive at a beach coast, but instead of admitting defeat and going home, which is what his family wants, Ali forces them to stay there, despite warnings from Mr. Hattie that the ocean tide will flood this area if a bad storm hits. Ali builds a home on a makeshift houseboat in this area, and yes, a bad storm hits, flooding the beach. The houseboat remains, and they are able to turn the motor on thanks to Mr. Hattie giving Charlie the sparks for the motor, so again they start moving back upstream due to Ali's stubbornness. Eventually, they arrive at the Reverend Christian Settlement. Ali sees this settlement is thriving, with much of his former town's locals here. Ali then burns down the church and steals gasoline, but not before getting shot by the reverend. The family escapes back to the houseboat, but Ali is paralyzed. The movie ends with the family lying to Ali as they move downstream to the coast instead of upstream, as per Ali's request. In the final narration done by his son Charlie, it is mentioned that Ali did indeed die as a result of his injuries, but his family still has hope for the future. The end. Uh, that's that's the plot summary. So just talking about this plot summary here, Jeff. What are your initial thoughts? You know, listening to the the summary, I pull out you know some interesting things. Uh, definitely some curious items that you know are maybe a little out of context, like the uh, the Doc Brown ice machine in the middle <laughs> of the jungle there, and you know without knowing sort of the character's motivations and whatnot. I think there's enough here to sort of pique one's interest, but. Most of this film is in the nuance of uh, of the characters and the metaphors that are that are happening here. So I don't think the plot summary does does it a whole lot of justice. It's uh, what's going on in this movie that's interesting is under the surface. Correct. What this movie really is uh, is another character study. Essentially, we are focused on Ali mainly, played by Harrison Ford, the father. But there's also you know the family to talk about especially his son, Charlie, played by, by River Phoenix. And yeah, we'll, we'll get into this. It should be, again, an interesting discussion, focusing on who really this character of Ali is, what is really driving him to go to the Mosquito Coast, and you could even argue what drives his family to keep staying with him, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it is... They're crazier than he was, I think. Maybe, maybe. But how about I hit you with some, some trivia before we get into the nitty-gritty of the film? So yeah, man, my favorite. your favorite part? Okay. I love the truth. <laughs> so the budget for this movie was $25 million, but it only made $14 million. Apparently, according to Harrison Ford, this is the only movie he's ever been in that has never made his money made its money back. So I guess not surprising, but not but it is still shocking. I mean, $14 million for for a drama probably could have done better. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'm surprised that he had that to say. I mean, I haven't looked at the box office numbers for Hollywood Homicide lately, but 
if this is the uh, <laughs> only one that <laughs> didn't make its money back. I mean, you know, I can I can understand it because given the time it came out, I mean, you know, I didn't see this movie when this came out in theaters. I mean, Harrison Ford was a, was a name by now, obviously after uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. He's a very bankable star at at this point in time. Because it's such a different look for him, right? This is, as you said, more of a character study. There's no action. Well, there is. I mean, there is some action here, but it, it's a totally different look. So, again, sometimes with movies, it's it's timing and finding the right person for the role. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of understand that it wasn't it wasn't very successful given what it was following. Yeah, I mean, like, there are two things here. One is the, the draw of Harrison Ford, and I think probably in that prime of his acting career you know at that point you know he had just i think he just did witness so again directed by peter weir same director as this movie apparently while they were filming witness peter weir convinced harrison ford to climb on board this project as soon as witness was done and released i think they started filming this one pretty quickly so i think people weren't really in tune with the fact that harrison ford was more than an action star and I think, you know, the main general audience was probably saying, well, I want, and I know this is one of the reasons I didn't like it as a kid is like, well, I want to see Indiana Jones. I want to see Han Solo. You know, the, who is this boring character? The young kids yeah. don't get that at that time. And as I mentioned, the second thing is, is he didn't really get the acclaim. I mean, he, he did get the acclaim of Witness when this movie was finished. Witness was also kind of a dull movie to begin with as well. It was good, good acting job by Harrison Ford, but. Uh, I, I'm not really sold on Witness being that popular of a movie as well. It's, that'd be another interesting one to dive into in the future. But here, here's yeah. another interesting piece of trivia. Take a guess who was originally slotted to play Ali Fox. I don't know why I want Take to see Mark Hamill. Was it Mark Hamill? <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> really? No. Uh, Stallone? No, no, no. Jack Nicholson was originally oh, offered. Nice. And I could see Jack in this role. I could too, actually. Yeah, Honestly, is... This, is, this is a Nicholson role. But he declined for a very interesting reason. Because they were filming on location in Belize. He said, I'm declining because I cannot watch my L.A. Laker games there. Well, it, I mean, it's a reason. <laughs> That's a reason. I guess when you're that rich, you know, you don't, you're not really desperate for feeding the family yeah, at that exactly. point. You could pick and choose your role. You're the king but... of Hollywood, yeah. That, that guy would have brought the crazy to this role. That, that would have been cool. Yeah, yeah. And I mentioned Peter Weir and Ford did Witness together. Another interesting t uh, tidbit here is because because of this movie and because of how well they got along, River Phoenix and Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford did make the specific recommendation to Steven Spielberg that Phoenix play the young Indy in, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, interesting. Yeah, it was because of this movie. Upon release, critics did pan this movie quite heavily. You know, a lot of them saying, and it'll be interesting, we could talk about this, saying Harrison Ford was way over the top. His acting wasn't very good. Strangely enough, Ford was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. He did not win. But I think some critics panned this movie quite heavily at the time. We can get into, I read a couple of reviews just to get a feel of what they were saying. Uh, I don't want to spoil it. I'll probably talk about it later. But ever since this movie's been made, as I mentioned, Ford has been a big-time defender of this movie. And I guess we'll see as we move forward if it's justified or not. One last piece of trivia here. Since they were uh, when they were filming and building the sets in Belize in the jungle, they actually unearthed a Mayan temple. Um, <laughs> an actual authentic Mayan temple, and then they had to relocate and hand over that location to the government. So that's another... So Indiana Jones... 
you know, discovered something worthy of That's Indiana cool, Jones, actually, yeah. which is pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a pr- pretty neat little story there. So, <laughs> you know, it's too bad they weren't filming Indy. You know, that would have been quite interesting. Well, yeah, they could have they could have scrapped this movie and, and just <laughs> done that or built that into the movie. That would have been cool, too. Yeah, that would have been that would have been pretty sweet. Goddamn historians and their bullshit historical preservation. <laughs> Make a good movie, goddammit. Yeah, it's all about the bucks. It's all about the entertainment. Okay, so how about we, we get in, get into the movie now? Unless you want to... Do you want any comments on the trivia or anything you wanted to mention? No, let, let's pull this sucker apart. Okay, so, you know, we're starting the movie here with Allie. The hair again played by Harrison Ford. He's driving his son Charlie to a hardware store. I found this scene quite interesting because it really sets the tone of the movie and sets the tone of who Allie Fox really is. Like, on the way to the, the store... He's complaining about the state of America. He's complaining about the economy. He's complaining about foreign investment. You know, he's pretty much, he literally says, this place is a toilet. He goes, Charlie, look around. This place is a toilet. You know, it's quite early for me to ask you a question, but I mean, just based on this first introductory scene, what what are your thoughts of this character? I, I did write that down as well. This place is a toilet. So he's obviously seeing what's wrong with America. He's kind of lamenting on the uh, failure of the American dream, I think. That's that's kind of what I'm getting here. He, uh, there's sort of an undertone of, of racism, almost, uh, and I'm not really sure why. So, you know, he said, you know, a bunch of American money going to Japan and whatnot. So when I meet this guy in the first scene here, obviously he's disillusioned. Yes. I don't I know why yet, yeah. but it's... And there's a little bit of exposition in, in all of the dialogue here. He's He's spelling out his thoughts to his son, but, I, you know, I, I'm not finding him sympathetic at this point. And that, that's obviously through the lens of the 21st century here. But I'm seeing, you know, it's intriguing as well. So, you know, we're used to Harrison Ford being the American hero. And right. here we're seeing him in a very different way. He's he's the opposite of this right now. So so it's it's a little, it's almost unsettling, but it is interesting at the same time. Yeah, and, and it's a good point. I thought it actually it was very effective, especially because, I mean, I haven't read the novel. This is based off a novel, but I do love this opening scene because you don't really, I mean, Ali Fox is not a likable character throughout the events of this movie. Really, as I said, it's a character study of who this guy is and why is he this way. So obviously in this scene, he's talking to his son. As you mentioned, he's disillusioned with the state of the Amer- uh, American society. He has a lot of contempt for everything around him. And you mentioned, like, yeah, it's maybe, you know, he's depressed about the state of the American dream uh, because he is an inventor. We can get into there. But did you love the cameo in the uh, <laughs> hardware store there? The man with some hair. Can't stand you. Yeah, can't, can't stand, stand you. Yes. <laughs> he has hair. <laughs> Jason Alexander himself, hair. yeah. yeah it's, you can oh, see I it's starting to go. I love the look he gives as soon as Harrison Ford walks through the door. And he, he didn't look. He just had to hear Harrison Ford complain and bitch, like Ali Vox complain and bitch. And he just kind of yeah. like gives that look. It's like, ah, oh, fuck. This guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I love it. I love that look. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Timing. Yeah, it's perfect timing. So another thing that he mentions that they're in... This is kind of a theme that keeps popping up a little bit throughout the movie. He specifically says there's a war in America. What are your thoughts about him saying that? Like, what is that war to him? I think there's a couple layers going on here. So I think on like the the character is talking about a literal war because 
he kind of, you know, later in the movie, he's talking about that. And I think that that's sort of what he's talking about on the surface. I think the movie, through that dialogue, is talking about something else underneath. The war in America is perhaps the corruption or the war, the war that capitalism or corporate America is waging on middle class America. And I don't think that's what he's talking about, but I think that's what the movie's talking about through him, if that makes sense. And I agree. I even think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about, you know, all these franchises around him as well in that drive to the hardware store. He's talking yeah. about the porno shop there, the fast food restaurant here. And then, yes, he talks about foreign investment coming in and buying, probably investing in all of these franchises at the time, which still exists today. So, yeah, you're exactly right. I think that's what he's referring to, and that's probably why he... For, that's one of the reasons probably why he's so disillusioned and what sparks this MacGuffin of him wanting to leave to Honduras, to the Mosquito Coast. So... Let's move on. He goes back to... We show cut back to the farm after he leaves the hardware store. He doesn't buy anything there because he doesn't want his money going to Japan. So when we cut back to the farm, we see a scene of him showing his two young sons his scale model cooling machine. It does work, but it's smaller, so I guess through the power of ammonia and some Hollywood magic, he's creating ice from fire. But this illustrates that he is an inventor, a very imaginative engineer. And he's a genius. But he's not practical because it's showing what he's doing here. He's hired to do a job to invent some kind of cooling mechanism to help keep some of the crops cool for a farmer. And he's kind of off doing this impractical side invention. Even though it's semi-related, it's not really what his boss wants. It's not practical. So he's going about doing it his own way. And that's demonstrating that this guy here really doesn't follow the rules, nor does he have interest in following the rules. Do you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, he uh, definitely agree with that. He's he's sort of started where he needed to start, and then it took it way off in another direction. What I thought was interesting about that, though, is you know when he's talking about sort of the, the the downfall of America and the rampant capitalism, and yet he's an inventor, and you know an inventor in a capitalist society is. I mean, that's the bread and butter of, of capitalism is people coming up with new things and he's doing that. But I don't think he, he can't see that he's a part of what he thinks is wrong with, with everything. I mean, there's probably a few degrees of separation from, you know, what a guy like him would think and, and what he sees. But certainly an uh, interesting insight into this guy. He doesn't, he just, he's, uh, it's hard. I don't know. He, he doesn't see, he doesn't see himself. You know, he's very focused on what he thinks he can create, but he doesn't see that he's not being useful, that he's also he's screwing over his, his boss who's trying to do a good thing by growing food for people. So we're seeing some interesting layers here. Yes. It's not coming together yet, but... It will. We are, we, it will, we, we, yeah. but we are seeing some, some cool things so far, I think. Yes, and I agree. Also, wanted to point out that something I wrote down in my notes I found it quite interesting that he calls his scale model invention his baby boy mm. and that's in front of his two sons yeah to me it already tells me one thing that family is a secondary value to him yeah and that's a theme we're gonna see yeah. Yeah. play out here yeah. yeah and then the funny thing is is then in front of the farmer when he brings the scale model to the farmer he then calls his cooling box fat boy yeah. So I don't know if you took notice of that. Obviously, yeah, you know, yeah, um, from the yeah the Manhattan Project, Manhattan yeah. Project, and yeah. um, you know the atomic bombs. So does he think of himself as someone who's going to change the world for the 
Now, the interesting thing is, is is he talking about something that's going to radically change the world in America's favor because he's so pissed off and disillusioned about America? Or is does he actually value what the damage to other countries that Fatboy did? Like, it's, it's kind of interesting what his perspective of how proud he would be of calling his invention Fatboy. In what perspective does he place value on that name? And it's curious. I, it's hard to answer until we get to the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. again, it's kind of shows that he's very disillusioned. He thinks very highly of himself. And maybe he's even borderline psychotic. It's quite interesting. Yeah. So then, because the farmer, his employer, doesn't really like the invention, says it's not practical, and for him to get to real work and not mess around with this junk, kind of pisses him off and leaves him frustrated so then we see him contemplating on leaving the states and he's talking about the jungle he wants to go somewhere where you know he's not burdened by these and i'm going to use a word where i think is very important institutions something that i think he's really you know dead set against he doesn't like the idea of any of the law or institutions of society burdening him mm-hmm. because he, he values the days of old, the days of yore of America. So he's kind of now thinking himself as a pioneer, like those American pioneers who came and took, maybe stole, uh, depending on your perspective, and developed and invented the land at the beginning of the times for America and the Western world. And he wants to go and create, do the same thing and go create a new civilization and mold it into his own vision in a similar way, where he's, again, not burdened by these institutions that seem to be handcuffing him. And in another, in another aspect, it's interesting. Do you think he's interested in becoming a god? Does he see himself in a godlike complex that way? Well, I think I did write something down to this effect for later on in the film so let's come back to that point because i think we've got some we've got some ammo here that'll be interesting to unpack after a little bit more of the movie yeah so i mean so they do decide to to leave but um you know something i it's mentioned several times here but i wanted to get your thoughts on he calls his wife mother yeah so all the time not his first name not wifey uh (laughs) but wifey What do you want me to say? It, it well, could be, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of that would have been that would have been weirder than mother, I think. I, I, no, mother's <laughs> mother's a little more odd, I think. So, what do you think about that? And, and I think this is a little thread here that again touch upon later. But what did you think on, on him calling her mother all the time? Yeah, you know what? I wasn't really sure what to make of it. it struck me as sort of an old timey sort of farmer style way of speaking to call her mother. I was trying to unpack it and you know really what this means is how he sees her as she's just sort of the uh, <coughs> instrument of or sort of the a vessel that he can use to create his progeny in the same way that she might have been a wheelbarrow in order for him to carry raw, carry raw materials or you know a truck or something like that. She's not who she is. In fact, I don't know if we ever get her name. She is just that vessel for his invention for his his creativity and nothing more than that she yeah like and i agree with you she is just a vessel again for his invention which was his kids Mm -hmm. a natural invention but i think that's pretty much all the value he places on her i don't see anything yeah that seems to be the case and yet where i think maybe the film made a maybe not a misstep but a short step here is that's what he calls her and that and you know we're interpreting it that way but the way he actually treats her i don't see that translating into his day-to-day treatment of her you know what i mean 
No, no, no. Say that again? I don't see him treating her like anything less than, you know, his wife, whom he loves. He seems to they seem to have a decent relationship. He seems to love her. I believe that. And maybe that's why it stand it really stood out to me when he started calling her mother. It just didn't it didn't didn't quite settle up with me based on his behavior towards her. Uh, and I can understand that. I mean, I didn't I agree. Like there are scenes where it shows he has some genuine feelings for her, thinks of her as a wife, but I I wouldn't say there's anywhere in this movie that he thinks of her as an equal. No, definitely not. No, a- absolutely not. He treats her quite rudely and um with a lot of disrespect throughout the whole movie. You know, I found it funny that she was just willing to give up and go to a place that's quite dangerous, potentially dangerous for her kids. She seemed like, okay, well, I'm in the middle of doing dishes, and then she has a great smile on her face. Huh, at least I don't have to worry about cleaning those ones. That was I'll weird. De- I'll, deal, I'll deal with the, the, the poisonous <laughs> snakes and the boa constrictors and the Ebola and everything yeah. else over there, but fuck these three, four dishes that are left in the sink. That's I've got a great of, smile on my face. That's kind of how I feel about doing the dishes, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was a weird scene, wasn't it? It's, yeah. just kind of looked around like, ah. Peace, and then they were gone. It was yeah, it was weird. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought they would have packed some shit up before they just left for developing country. Yeah, and the, I want to touch on that. And like, they pretty much didn't bring anything yet. They had quite a bit when they got there. But anyways, a minor, minor quibble. But let's move on to the next scene. It's an important scene. So they're on the boat traveling to the Mosquito Coast, and this is where we meet Ali and his family. Meet the Reverend, the Christian missionary, and his family as they're going to the same place on this uh, cargo ship. And initially, this is our first chance to see that they're quite at odds with each other. The missionary is a man of faith. Ali Fox is not. He's not a fan of religion. Doesn't have faith in the institution of religion. And he says like religion doesn't work at all. Too bad it doesn't work, is what he said. He's very knowledgeable of the of the scripture, but he says plainly, yep, doesn't work. Fuck this shit. So just based on that, like based on him, again, another institution and him having no faith in religion or God, or does he perceive himself as someone who's above that? I don't think he consciously perceives himself as above that. He obviously thinks less or or doesn't he doesn't have a lot of patience for religion or scripture he's very knowledgeable about it so which is interesting which tells me that uh, he would have been probably brought up in a religious home or had been a religious man at one point and then had become disillusioned in much the same way i become disillusioned with america and then so strayed from that so i thought this was this was interesting and as you you know brought up a few minutes ago uh, does he have a god complex so we, we're starting to see some interesting parallels, and we have a foil for him now with, with the Reverend. So right. I like these scenes on the boat. I did think they were important as uh, as set up for the rest, and we were starting to get a, a picture of you know him, maybe not himself seeing seeing himself as God, but he, seeing himself as a grand patriarch of not just his family, but this new society that he wants to create. Right. It's an interesting thing I wanted to bring up here, but I'll pose the question whether you want to answer it or not. Is Ali Fox really any different than the missionary? No, he is not. And yeah. we can definitely get into that. So, I mean, like, in the end, they're two peas in a pod. Go about it in two different ways. Yeah. Yeah, so we get to Belize, uh, the city, and that's where we, I'll quickly mention, you know, Ali Fox buys a town, Geronimo, which is in the middle of nowhere. And when they first start going up there, I just wanted to get your thoughts. When What did you initially think when he bought a town? What did you think it was going to be like? 
I mean, I assume the place was going to be some kind of a real dump. I mean, that's what I was expecting. I didn't know it would be so easy to buy a town. Yeah, it's quite interesting you know, when you got it just, just if, like that. But I'm sure it's not expensive. I mean, people are uh, there. There's, it's like impoverished nation, right? So Yeah, it seems like an odd way of doing business, uh, even for an impoverished na- nation. Here's You want to buy a town? Yeah, big, small, you know, what's your what's your budget? We got a town for every budget here, town for every budget. <laughs> it, was a little, it was a little weird, but I, I mean, obviously it's a mechanism to, yeah, to get them to where they need exactly. to be. Yeah. And it was kind of played light as well, so... You know, from a storytelling perspective, it, it kind of works to to get us to the next step, which is where the important stuff starts to happen. Right. So now they, you know, they, as I mentioned, they, in the plot summary, they hire Mr. Hattie, the boatman, to take him up the river uh, to get to Geronimo. And as you said, they get there and they see just, what, a couple of huts pretty much run down. There's nothing else there. Just a bunch of jungle. And there's some locals, like inhabitants there. And don't know, maybe what, a handful of them. And then... Yeah, everyone except Allie is upset or disheartened. Allie loves it. He says, I get to start from scratch. So he gets to literally lay his seed, which are his children, and also (laughs) seed for the food and his vision and build a society from scratch. And he pretty much says it exactly. I get to start from scratch. So we have the father, we got the mother, and we have the seed planting their society and their, you know, <laughs> and literally their DNA all over the place, right? So, and I just thought I'd mention that as they start building the town. I, d- I did enjoy, as they are building the town, this is probably one of my more favorite scenes, is he's talking and expressing his frustration to these locals in Geronimo about his frustrations with American life and his own disbelief he didn't fit into those stereotypes, what did you think of that? It was like a back and forth. There was multiple scenes of him just venting as they were building the town. What What did you think of all that? Well, it, it's like he doesn't he doesn't see what's going on here. I mean, he wants to develop the whole place, and that seems contrary to what he you know what he was disillusioned with in the first place, which was the place being sort of built up from its natural beauty. I mean, I know this place looks like the garbage masher on the detention level and the Death Star, but <laughs> it's it has sort of a purity to itself that he seems to understand when he first gets there. Uh, Sorry, did now, you say that he understood or did not understand? That he did understand. I mean, he got, right. like you said, he, they get there and he's so excited. Right. Uh, now, uh, part of his excitement is he sees what he wants it to become, but it's... You know, it's a it's an unspoiled place, and I think right. that's got to be part of the excitement. So what he's now doing is he's stripping all of that away. And even though what they start to create at first is is very beautiful, he's robbing from it what it is, and that's sort of part of why he left America in the first place. You know? So, yeah, because like you know, you're you're ruining the beauty of what he considered paradise. Yeah. So now yeah. he's going to a place where is beautiful, even though that town is a shithole. But the surrounding area is just absolutely gorgeous. It is paradise to probably 99% of the people who could, who'd, in the world who could visit there. And yeah, he's, the people he's living coming. there didn't seem to have any problem with how uh, it was. Yeah, probably not. I mean, we're not really given their point of view. But they're used to it. But it is paradise. So he's coming in here with his inventions and his ideas and he's, you can look at it one way, he's either a genius or he's a destroyer. Yeah, well, then he is, he is both, and he, but he only sees himself as one. Yes, and he only sees himself as one. But I think that's one of the themes, as we mentioned, that's one of the themes of this movie. You know, like, innovation, 
versus maybe paradise or or nurture or yeah you could say like innovation versus nurture innovation versus nature in a sense yes. so now you know they're obviously building it uh, you know quite impressed with the uh, you know, it quite shows how much of a genius he truly is. It's actually quite amazing to see the town get built up. I mean, it's beautiful. Like these structures that he's building, he's able to build a, he gets a fishery made for food, a beautiful lush vegetable gardens, these structures for the bedrooms. It's, you know, with the mosquito netting and high in the trees, like a sec, we're talking about second level, beautiful resort rooms here. Uh, it's actually quite gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. It shows the, the true, and he is a, genius like he is uh he is an engineer he's a great genius he, it's, it was amazing to see it being built and then we do get the first missionary visit because the reverend who is i guess is further upstream in a different area hears word of what ali fox and his family are doing up here so well i loved the one line that harrison ford gives him here i didn't know the lord was franchising in the neighborhood yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was good yeah. yeah that was great but i also love the shot that peter weir did here the classic Western leg yeah. standoff where, you know, you see it, uh, the reverends on the pier and it's a long shot. And then you see Harrison Ford's legs go up there and you see him with his tool belt. And it almost looks like it's a Western or Han Solo himself is going to take, take a gun out and shoot him. Or Indiana Jones is going to do that, you know? Like, I love that. And that was, that confrontational shot and that, that pose was completely done on purpose. 100%. Oh, for uh, sure it was. Yeah. yeah, and it's a great shot. Uh, well done by the director. But I also I, saw, I also love it here, you know, how he says, uh, and this is my, one of my, getting on one of my favorite scenes here, made me laugh so, so loud. He said, get off my land. It's like, instead of get off my plane, it's like foreshadowing yeah. Mr. Ford. <laughs> and then the funny thing is, as soon as he said that, Mr. Hattie just starts laughing. You know, I, I don't know if you got that laugh. And it's like, I didn't understand, I didn't know quite well if Mr. Hattie even understood what he meant by that, but... <laughs> He's just, I just love that scene, that whole scene. What do you think of their confrontation? So now the Reverend is there warning the people that he is the devil. Yeah. What, what did you think of all that? I really love this scene. And part of why I love this scene is because you're with Ali on this one, I think. I think at this point, because he's built the town up, the natives seem really into it. He's got the quick wit and the zippy comebacks. It's... You know, you're, you're kind of going with him at this point. And I, uh, yeah, I love the scene. I love the dialogue, like you mentioned. The the shots with the the, the Western showdown there was, was really cool. It, it was it was fun. I was kind of, I was really into this scene, you know. It was yeah, so was I. It was cool. amazing. Yeah. I, I loved yeah. it here. It was a great a great scene done by both Harrison Ford and, and the actor who was playing the Reverend. I thought it was very good. So that, then we cut through to Thanksgiving dinner scene. And I want to ask a question here. I mean... For me, I find this strange that Allie here, who seems to be against a lot of what is wrong in society and the institutions that America seems to have placed upon itself, which he deems as part of a problem, he is a man who wants to celebrate Thanksgiving. Mm. So mm -hmm. do you agree with that sentiment? Like, why is he celebrating or accepting or bringing upon this land an American institution? Because you can agree Thanksgiving is an institution. Yeah, I think that goes right back to what's emblematic about this character, which is he he can't see himself. He can't look in a mirror and see it. So he's an imperialist. When you look at this scene here, and he's wearing, he's got the bow tie on and celebrating Thanksgiving, he's, he's a British or an American imperialist, and he can't see it. You know, those imperialistic societies, whether it's the British Empire, 
or the modern-day American empire, they don't see that what they're doing is being imperialistic. And he is he exactly. is the microcosm of that. <coughs> he doesn't get it. He thinks he's doing good. He's, he's bringing civilization to these natives. Thanksgiving's just Thanksgiving. It's yeah. part of civilization. So, of course, he'd be bringing that with him. And, and Thanksgiving being the very, I mean, that's like, the flagpole of of American imperialism. Exactly. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, based it's all around it's, taking the land away from from, yeah. from the natives, right? And so, he can't see it. He thinks he's he's bringing civilization, right? He's, he he can't see what he's doing, and that that's that's perfectly done here. Yeah, because there was no other depth to the scene. It was just like I just want to show them celebrating Thanksgiving, and then we're cutting away. There was yeah. nothing else there. There was no uh, exposition. There was no talking to his family. It was just. We are celebrating, and that's it. And that was done on that was done for that very specific reason, as you just mentioned. I com- I agree completely. It also shows him not only can he not see himself as an imperialist, but he is a hypocrite. Yeah. Whether he realizes that or not. Well, he uh, doesn't, and that's yeah. the whole. That's this <coughs> character. He he has no ability to self reflect at all. Yes, uh, and I agree. Now we get to some of the more interesting scenes of the movie. So he has managed to build a self-sufficient society here. As I mentioned, they have gardens, they've got a fishery, they've got more reinforced uh, housing, safer housing, but now he wants to forget all that and he wants to go to the next level and create ice out of fire for these people. He wants to develop his a practical, real-life model of his cooling machine invention. So he starts building this thing, and the funny thing is, is he, again, foreshadowing, and interesting words that he chose, Ali himself, he tells the locals that it's a monster and that he is Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. And that's literal. And it's it's strange that, again, he says it. I, I know these words are through Charlie because it's slightly through his narration and his point of view. But that's what he says his dad said to everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. again, going back to the thing is I think there's some level of psychosis here. Like he doesn't even know what he's saying because if he did – he'd realize this is a bad idea. Just from the words he just said. Like, it's curious that he's saying he is, that this is a monster and he is Dr. Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. one, the locals don't know of those uh, fairy tales and myths, but the fact that he chose to use it kind of tells me there's some level of psychosis here that this guy, this guy ain't right in the head. Yeah, he's got some, he's got some problems, this guy. I mean, at least Frankenstein knew he created a monster. Yeah, and he knows he's creating a monster. He's he knew it was, a, but he knew it was a bad thing. Like, he was... You know, Ali's digging the fact that he's created this monster. Yes. And the funny thing is, is now, uh, I thought I'd uh, bring this up. I don't know if you noticed this. So, you know, once the structure is built, you get a really nice shot from Peter Weir of uh, these two locals in a boat. They're just kayaking in the river. And they pass the, um, sh- the, the cooling machine shed. And did you get a kind of a 2001 obelisk, ominous vibe with the music in that shot. When you looked at that shed in that one scene, that's what I got. It was a very still, long shot, and it was great. It's funny sometimes when, you know, you make observations like this because we're looking for metaphors. That is exactly what I wrote down oh. in my notes. <laughs> that is Big Freezer. It, it's, it is. It's the obelisk from 2001, and it's, you know, bringing the enlightenment, enlightenment to the primates. It's exactly what I saw here. Yeah. So I, I think we can agree that's... That's probably on purpose. Yeah, and it's 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 just such an interesting concept uh, of 
who is Ali and why is he doing this and is this what he's doing? Is mm-hmm. and it's 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 great. It's to me it's now becoming more and more obvious as we are moving on in, into this movie. And again, are we now taught in another concept? I thought it's interesting because he's saying he literally wants to create ice from fire. Now the funny thing here is humanity initially evolved way back when due to the invention of fire to get yeah. away from ice. So now are we doing what he seems to be doing the opposite. He wants to use fire to create ice. And I thought that that was an interesting note that I I wanted to put here because is he a devil or slash anti-god here? Because again, cold usually while it has its benefits is usually something that humans want to get away from. But yet he wants to bring it here. That's interesting that you bring that up because I was trying to figure out the whole ice metaphor the entire time and I couldn't get there but now that you're talking about you know the prometheus myth and uh, sort of the this is sort of the antithesis to that because this is going if it's it's ice so he's going in the opposite direction and he seems to be going in the opposite exactly and he seems to be going in the opposite direction the entire movie yeah i just find it quite interesting like he's always going against the against the current or against the steps that humanity has taken yeah, you're right he is and as usual he can't see it at all i'm glad you brought that up because that's that's bringing some Tetris pieces down in my brain for this moment. <laughs> said that. So now the next scene here is, okay, so obviously this machine works. It's a great scene. I love the scene, even though I'm not really sure how he did generate ice in terms of real life physics there. Yeah, Again, the magic, cold fusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cold fusion reactor is something going on in there. All I need is some ammonia. Let's go. I got ice. Science. <laughs> something, something science, as you mentioned yeah. before. Yeah. But anyways, it, it's okay. I can let that go. I love the scene where he brings the ice out for the first time and everyone's uh, enjoying it. And then he's able to, again, it's something he's saying, like increase productivity. <laughs> you know, like yeah. now I want to increase productivity. Again, going back to he's doing exactly what has happened in America. High business franchises, all they want to do is increase productivity, look ways to innovate and increase productivity for an investment. And this is foreign investment. He is the foreign foreigner. Yeah. So he's doing yeah. exactly what he is trying to escape. Uh, I did love how he had that ramp and he's sliding the ice down into the these huge ice blocks down into the water for all the kids to swim in. It's cooler water now. And I loved the tubing going so I can have air conditioning in the huts. I thought that was yeah. a really cool scene. Really well filmed. It was fun to watch. And then we get to Charlie's narration and he's saying, well, now that he accomplished this and the locals like this, he still wasn't satisfied. They're starting to take it for granted, he said. So yeah. then now he wants to take this ice inland to go to some tribes people who really haven't ventured out anywhere. And he wants to give the, this, show this ice to them because it'll be a jewel to them. So again, does he have this godlike complex? Like, I don't understand what the point of his obsession was to get to the ice to the tribesmen in the middle of nowhere. Because he already impressed everybody here. He accomplished what he set out to do. His invention worked. He impressed these people. So, I mean, he's going to go, that wasn't good enough. So why have, yeah. to, why have to take it in, more inland? I don't get it. What was your take on this? Yeah, I, I was a little confused as well. I mean, obviously we're, you know, we, we're trying to follow this character along. He's broken, right? So what we're seeing so far isn't satisfaction for him. But to him to kind of go further inland or further up the river is, I suppose it would, you know, I can see it thematically as a logical choice. But from a plot perspective, it doesn't seem to make a, a lot of sense to me uh, that this is something he would want to do because it just it didn't. This part didn't add up for me. Yeah, I mean, I was a bit confused. I didn't. 
I didn't really get it unless it was just a way to find those militants, as I mentioned, where he thought yeah. they were hostages to yeah. to get a slightly more action slash tension scene going, like some tension scenes going. I think they still could have showed up regardless anyways. Yeah, I, I didn't understand it. The only thing I can think of is that he's just trying to escape. Like he's just, he can't sit still and be proud of his accomplishments. He's still running from something. Well, it could be as well that even though he can't see it, he is becoming what he hates. He is creating what he has always hated. But because he can't see it, he's not satisfied and he doesn't know why. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, because he what says, else can he do? Exactly, because right? like, but he already said earlier in the film, I'm leaving America because I couldn't let, let it watch it die. Mm -hmm. And he said the same thing about leaving his mom dying. Yeah. And she was dying. Well, I couldn't stay there because I couldn't watch the strong woman die. Yeah. So is this kind of like some kind of story trying to say like this guy can't deal with certain emotions or can't, he just keeps running. He's escaping maybe the inevitable, I don't know, like deterioration of, of humanity, whether it be like a an institution or actual death, inevitability of death. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, I think what, you know, when you come to a movie like this or a story like this, as you said, is basically a character study. And, you know, you get to a point where you're, where you're trying to examine a character, but you still have to move the plot along. That's where some difficulty comes in, unless you have really, really skilled people making a film. You end up having to make a leap or two in order to further examine the character, which is great. That's what I want as, as an audience member is to further examine a character, but to move the plot along as well can be really, really difficult. Now, you know, when you talked about that analogy, when he's talking about his mother's death, and I loved that scene when they're, they're all grouped in there as the family, right. yeah. and he's talking about how he loved her too much to watch her die, which was the same, which is why he left America and, that was so emblematic of him because, as we've said, you can't see what he did. Like, that's, if you think about his mother, what a callous and selfish thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it was out of love, but he can't see what he's done. It's not about him, right, in that case. So, no, no, it's, it's not. Yeah, and I agree. And I, yeah, that, and that was, that, and that kind of scene is great because it's like, it's a little nugget, shows us who this guy is. And it also shows us that he has no idea who he is. And then, but unfortunately, we kind of come to the scene, you know, again, where they're carrying the ice through the, the jungle there. And from a plot perspective, it doesn't quite make sense. It only makes sense to sort of service further examination of the character. So things, I think, start to fall apart a little bit here. I think this was the weakest part of the movie. I just wanted to point out, though, just for Geekland. One thing this movie has in spades, and I got it a lot through their trek through the forest, was the good old finger of doom. I don't know if you're aware of that analogy or not. No, no I'm not. Okay, so apparently Harrison Ford in his prime, whether we're talking about Star Wars movies or Indiana Jones movies or some of his other higher profile action movies like the Jack Ryan series or whatnot, he always sticks up his finger and points it in someone's face. Sometimes it's really <laughs> close in the face. And sometimes a little further away, but it's that babu yeah. index finger going up like a very bad man. But he just doesn't wave it. He just points it in front <laughs> of his own face, kind of like, no, I'm right. Or, you know, it's kind of like that defiant stance. And Harrison Ford does that in spades in this movie. So I got a lot of chuckles throughout the movie every time he did it. I didn't do a count, but I think it's more than five. So <laughs> that, 
Is that kind of his version of the George Clooney head bob? Or? I think so. I think so. You could probably go that way. Uh, that that is Harrison Ford's thing. Is yeah. the finger of doom? Yeah. Google it. You'll you'll like it. It's it, okay. it, it is there out there in Geekland. So I'm assuming there's like a compilation video on YouTube of there, that. There, I'm sure there is. I haven't yeah. seen one. I didn't look for it, but I'm sure there is. <laughs> so as as I talked about in the plot summary, the one of the things was is when he arrived at that tribe's people, the ice is gone. He didn't impress them, but. He thought he saw some hostages there, and he went to try and spring them, but they said they didn't want to leave, and he said, okay, well, just follow, follow our path back, our tracks back. Come to my town, Geronimo, if you ever are able to get out of here. And eventually, a couple of days later, it looks like they do come, but they're not hostages. They are... Are they militants? Like, I don't even know what they are. Mercs, militants, they're just there, you know, wandering the land, yeah. but they've got guns, and then it looks like they're just leeching off everybody. Yeah, again, I think we're at a point where we're kind of inventing... Filmmakers kind of inventing. I well, I, again, I haven't read the novel, but the the storytellers are inventing an item to move the plot along because you know maybe he's stuck be, or what? Because I, I can't figure out. We're heavy into metaphor at this point, mm-hmm. and I can't figure out what these guys are supposed to represent. No, I think it's just a plot device. Yeah. I don't think they're supposed to represent anything except maybe to, as you said, move the story along, and you know, eventually, you know, we can skip forward. Like, these guys are, looks like they're rapey bastards that are ready to pounce on mother. mother. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, you do get some uncomfortable scenes there. Do you agree with the decision that he made that he had to kill him? Yeah. Yeah, and so do I. I have no Absolutely. problems. I think he had to save his family and save the town. There is no law there. It is his town, so he guess he's the mayor or and the sheriff. So... He makes a choice to lock them in the machine, the killing machine, uh, while they're sleeping there, turning it on. And unfortunately, these guys wake up and try and get out using their guns. They start shooting it from the inside. They blow up the ammonia tanks, and the whole thing blows up, killing them. But the gas leak, linking the air conditioning hoses from the cooling machine to the huts, uh, they catch on fire and ignite, and all the homes get destroyed. So the entire town is in ash by morning. So... What did you think of this whole scene with these bad guys and them, like, invading the town and staying there and, you know, kind of being an ominous threat and the way Ali dealt with it? Again, the the conflict itself felt a little manufactured to me uh, just in order to move the the story along, which didn't work for me. Uh, Again, I said we're heavily steeped in metaphor to this point, and these guys are just kind of coming out of nowhere for plot purposes, and that is a very stark contrast to the type of storytelling we've had to this point so that doesn't work for me how he deals with the situation uh, like i said he saw a threat these guys had to get capped for sure otherwise it was an us or them situation so he did what he had to do and i agreed with that and he what was interesting is that it, it made sense how he did it he used his ingenuity and his creativity to do it he didn't want to be cruel or violent he tried to take care of it in the most humane way possible. Obviously, things fell apart, as things do for him. But really unfortunate for me that the storytellers felt that this is how they had to sort of start the resolution of the story. What if these guys weren't out? I mean, they were randoms, just some randoms out in the jungle, some mercenaries or something like that. What if these guys didn't exist? Mm-hmm. Then the whole story plays out how? You know, just an idyllic society, okay, happy, happily ever after it, you know? So just felt like a bit of a cheat to me. I understand where you're going you're going. It doesn't really fit in thematically with the mo- with the rest of the story. 
but it seemed like something they had to kind of put in there for the movie. Mainstream audience probably are falling asleep at this point, yeah, unless you're so. introducing them. And I think that's uh, it's interesting. I haven't read the book. I'm wondering if they're in the book or not. So I have to go do some research on that. The one thing I did enjoy though was the I love the shot of the machine blowing up. I thought that was like that boom, 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 boom. Like it was mm-hmm. like really well filmed, and I love that shot. It's almost like you know very Spielbergo in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Spielberg. <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, bueno. Yeah, bueno. Spielberg used this kind of scream in. You've never seen that movie Duel, right? Where it's one of his first movies. It's like a chase thriller with this tr- ominous truck driver in a big truck. He's chasing this lily guy in a car. He's just stalking him. And at the end, the guy wins. The guy goes. The truck goes over a cliff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. spoiler alert. Okay, well, I mean, there, I have to tell you. <laughs> There's a sound it makes, which is really good. That's going to be my movie pick for next episode. And now you're... Are you serious? No. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, time. it's still worth the watch. But there's a sound that's made there that he replicated the same in Jaws when the shark was blown up and died. And, and is seen sinking to the bottom. It's almost like you hear this metal dinosaur kind of roar. And I got that here when they... Sh- when they as the explosions were happening and they cut away to Harrison Ford with his mouth gaped open and he's screaming. But it's not him screaming, it's that similar sound effect. I loved that. I thought it was a really well-crafted shot. And it's almost like, it's funny, as I mentioned, it was like kind of like a mechanism, a machine kind of sound. Like his own scream sounded like a machine. And I thought mm. that was just kind of interesting. Interesting. I, I did like that shot. So, anyways, but I agree for the most part. This this plot point was didn't fit the bulk of what the story was about. Yeah, they had to give him a new challenge, so they can't stay there because the water is polluted with ammonia hydroxide. So if they stay there and drink the water; they'll be killed. So they do leave and go downstream. Looks like towards the coast because Hattie's leading him that way. And on the beach shore there, they you know I think the family wanted to go back home to the U.S. Or at least go to where Hattie, Hattie's locals were living. But Ali says, nope, we're staying right here and we're going to make another society in our own little village just for us right here. And despite Mr. Hattie's warnings that a bad storm could hit and it would flood the entire beach and they'd all be, their homes would be destroyed and they'd probably be dead. So, But that doesn't matter to Ali. He was just too stubborn to listen. And I also found that Ali was very mean at this point to Hattie. He didn't like the fact that, you know, he... You know, the boat was destroyed in that explosion that kind of is Ali's fault. So he gives him a mega, an Omega watch saying, I don't need it anymore. You take it because your boat's gone. Nice gesture. So then when Hattie goes and sells the Omega watch because he's got nothing and he gets into a boat, Ali's all pissed. And he's, yeah. he treats him very rudely and meanly. And like, what, what did you make of this whole scene? And, and what did you think of that development? Why was he treating him so mean? Well, that's a good question. I mean, he's... Again, he's not, he can't self-reflect. So he tries to do things that are contrary to his own nature, but he can't see that all of the actions he does are just in parallel to, to being what he hates. So, but he's now, he's kind of snapped. Like his, he, ha- he created his dream society and that was ripped away from him. So now he's, he's starting to circle the drain now, or his, his mind is starting to circle the drain. He's starting to lose it. So Yeah, and I think he's reached, starting to reach a breaking point, and that's he's, why he's so mean. Yeah. And he's starting to get really mean to his family. 
as well in the, these scenes and upcoming scenes. Yeah, I do think that internally he's those threads are starting to unravel. Like his yeah. brain is just literally breaking. Like he's just reached that boiling point where he just can't like that frustration. You know, he can only go so far. He accomplishes something and it blows up in his face. He accomplishes something, he blows up in his face. Like even this society is not even working for him. It's not accepting him. And then, you know, he's, I think what, you know, he didn't like Hattie getting, being well off and having that boat because he sold the watch and he seemed kind of jealous. Like his jealousy now is starting to take over. Again, yeah. whether it's jealousy or just some kind of psychosis he has uh, and he's just breaking is, is you know, that's a. Uh, well, there's, there's layers there though, because he, he resents capitalistic urges or intentions so like the guy sold his watch so i think on the surface he's like oh he sold his watch for the watch for money you know what a you know what a capitalist how disgusting when it should have been cherished as a gift even though what does he care right if he doesn't right but i mean like him, but, but his boat was so. just yeah but he should understand is again you cannot right. self-reflect i agree with you but he should because his boat was destroyed as a result of ali's yeah. actions yeah so you yes. think there's supposed to be a logical sense and he should be happy that he got that so, you know, he gave it to him as a gift. But, yeah, he just can't see that, as you've said. So, eventually, a bad storm does come and, and hits their village on the, on the beachfront there. And because he made a house, their house on kind of a floating houseboat, again, another ingenious way, which saved their asses. They lost everything, but because Mr. Hattie gave these motor components or sparks, sparkers to Charlie, they were able to, you know, move away from the storm and go back upriver. So, now we have some scenes here where his, his kids are like... You know, they're hating him, wishing he was dead, and they think he dies as he dives under the boat to fix the rudder. So what what'd you make of all that? Like, at that point, I have a question. Did you, by chance, think that that was the end of the movie and he was going to die there? For a bit, I did. Yeah, I, I, I did. <laughs> I was, I mean, he was under there for a while, so mm -hmm. kind of fooled me. But then, you know, when he came back up, I kind of saw what they were, what they were doing. But it was, I like to see how the family sort of started under unravel. And and the son was, uh, you know, you can kind of see he wanted to sort, start taking control. Mother's not doing a goddamn thing. No, she's useless. And yeah, she was useless. So yeah, it was it was kind of a neat little scene. I thought mm -hmm. this is the first scene here where they kind of said, "Oh my God, he's dead!" And then they had that realization: we're free. Yeah. So which then quickly leads to the the conclusion of this movie. So then they go upstream, uh, continue upstream. And bump into the uh, the Reverend's Christian Missionary Camp area. So he gets out. Now I have a question for you. The first thing he see uh, he want his urge is he wants to go punch the guy. Yeah. I mean, the Reverend's not around. No one is around. He's just upset. Why is he upset? I think he's upset because it looks like this whole thing's working. Like yeah. nothing's blowed up. There's no mercenaries threatening to rape anybody's wives here. Everybody seems to be chill. They're thriving. And they're thriving, and the. I mean, I think there's two layers here. One, they're thriving, and he wasn't the one to do it. Mm -hmm. And two, you know, it's the missionary work, the religion, the Christianity that's sort of at the center of it. And we know he resents the the church as well. So there's like two things here that are really scraping away at this guy's brain at this point here. So I, I get it. I mean, he, this is the last straw for him. Yeah, like I think that's the breaking point. But then the funny thing is, is then when he goes to the church because he's ready to he can hear his sermon. Yeah. He goes He goes into the church, and he sees the reverend giving the speech over a TV. Yeah. The locals there, which are his former, some of them are his former town's locals who deserted him and 
another reason why he's upset later because he thinks they're betrayers yeah or betrayed him what did you think of him seeing the reverend on tv very all- interesting here yeah i think yeah so there's so there's a few things the first thing is that I think as the audience, we see, like, because we kind of come into this little sanctuary as he does. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's nice and peaceful. It's calm. looks like it's working. All of the locals, the disciples, if you will, are, are chill. Uh, so we're like, okay, this looks like it's pretty nice. But we see this guy on TV, and that, like every televangelist, fake. It's phony. Yeah, right? it's a fake institution. Which, but- is, which is really neat because that shows that this is all broken here, too. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's what calmed him down. Yeah, I think that's what calmed him down. What's neat is he is the first commandment of, of the Ten, right, is thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? Is he seeing the other god, the idolatry, the other god they're worshiping here, and he <laughs> sees that it's fake. Well, the funny thing is here, it's also interesting that they're almost worshiping or listening to technology. Yeah. And not a man. So maybe he, <laughs> does this prove Fox right? I don't know if it proves he's right, but it's certainly suggestive that the other way is wrong. There's interesting questions. I love that it's gray here. There is it's not it's not right and wrong here or black and white. It, it, it's gray. Is, yeah. yeah, and I, I love, love and I love the scene. This is my favorite yeah. scene in the movie, hands down. I, I mm-hmm. love this scene. It's great. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little weird after this. So eventually, like I mean, I know Ali meets up with the reference daughter and. Finds out that America didn't get blown up. But actually, backtracking here, it's interesting that Ali would lie and say that America did get blown up. I know he was saying, oh, there could be a threat of nuclear war, but he downright lied and said it did blow up. I mean, I guess that's just a way of just him trying to cement their hopes of going back and staying here. And his just utter distaste for America as well. It's almost, It's. I think it's more than that. It's almost like he wants that to have been the case like he was he's predicting it thinking it was going to happen he wants america to be destroyed he, only he because wants, it proves him right i don't well, think he, yeah, yeah yeah proves him right not because he wants america to be laid waste but because he wants to be right that that society was poisoned that it was cancerous and that he's made the right decisions by you know trying to start his new society out in the middle of goddamn nowhere. So uh, I thought that was really interesting that they threw that that part. I mean, the guy sounds like a doomsday prepper for part of part of the movie, but he wants he wants to be right about that. He should have just invented Skynet. Yeah, he probably could have done it out there too. <laughs> he just needed yeah, exactly. Mic- <laughs> I mean, he used like a book of matches to create giant ice cubes. I mean, you know, a couple <laughs> spark plugs, and the you know next thing you know, hunter killers are shooting plasma beams. <laughs> He just needed MacGyver. What a team up. Then they'd, they'd be set. Yeah. <laughs> so now what happens here now, going back to the movie. So Ali Fox, then at night, Charlie realizes the daughter can get the keys to the van or the Jeep. And Charlie goes back to, to, to the boat saying, we can all leave dad. He's trying to get right, get his mom and his uh, siblings to go with him. But then Ali, find out Ali's not there. Mom's still not willing to leave without him, and then they get a shot of the church engulfed in flames. So, and then Allie comes running back with some gasoline and says, "I love the line." Is like, "Oh, looks like I must have spilled some." He just said it so, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so innocently. It's like, ah, it's okay. I just must have spilled a little bit of gasoline. It's okay, guys. Let's go. I did love that line, but then Allie does get shot from the by the Reverend for burning the church. So again, is it the same reason why did he burn down the church? I could see him doing it initially the moment he wanted to get off the boat, but after seeing them watch the Reverend off TV, 
that calmed him down. Why would he go back and burn the church? Yeah, I didn't really understand that because he didn't really strike me as, you know, having violence in his nature or any hatred in his in his being because that's a that's a very violent thing to do. I mean, I guess we're supposed to believe that he snapped at this point. And I do believe that he snapped at this point, but you know, driven to that level of violence, I didn't really buy that part. Yeah, neither did I. I think this was the one thing I really didn't buy in the movie is like Again, they just wanted to, you know, yeah. action or plot device just to get him to get shot. Right. He, like needed to get, reason... he needed to get shot without being just straight up murdered. Yeah. Right. So it had to get had to get kind of set up that yeah. way. And yeah, it, it doesn't quite doesn't really ring true. Not really. No. And I agree. I'm 100 percent on board with you here. I didn't like that scene. It doesn't fit with the character. Didn't fit with the moment. So then he gets shot, and the family escapes on the houseboat again. But Fox is in and out of consciousness and seems to be dying and seems to be paralyzed. He can't move. And the kids now, obviously, they don't want him to die and anything like that. But I found it interesting that he keeps asking, Mother, are we going upstream? Are we Mm -hmm. going upstream? He still has not given up. And she lies to him. Because obviously the end shot is is they are not going upstream. They are going to the coast, which is downstream, going to the open ocean. And the narration closes with Charlie saying his dad did indeed die from the injury. But him and his family, I guess, loved him more than ever at that point. So, yeah, probably because uh, he was fucking dead. Uh, yeah, so let's talk See about ya. that. Uh, yeah, okay. that, that, that's one aspect of it. I don't know. Do you think that there's maybe some understanding and respect from from Charlie to his dad at this point? Uh, this is the question I have is, is like, who is Ali Fox? So, I mean, this is the end of the movie now. So who is Ali Fox? What is the message here? Is it clear or is it muddled? I don't want to muddle it further, but kind of yes and no. I mean, I think the message, the messages were very clear throughout most of the movie until we get to the third act. And then he, you know, when he loses it, I lose the threads that were that were getting woven together through the first couple of acts. We're, we're looking at criticism of capitalism and imperialism mm-hmm. through the eyes of Ali, mm. uh, which, uh, you know, le- legitimate criticisms all the way through, but layered onto that is that he's doing exactly the same things that he's critical of. So what we're looking at perhaps is a critique of human nature, because this is what people have done for 10,000 years. I mean, you can criticize uh, the British Empire for being imperialistic or the United States for being imperialistic or all of the other countless societies that have expanded their territory and subjugated or eliminated uh, the natives who were there before them. This is what people do, but they always do it with good intentions. I mean, especially the British Empire, they always thought they were bringing civilization to the savages without realizing that what they were doing was destroying. Right. Um, you know, modern in modern day capitalism is whether you agree with that criticism or not. I mean, that that's kind of what we're looking at here. So obviously there's the religious undertones here as well. So if there's the uh, religion as being the imperialistic society. So those are the messages that were, that were kind of seeing, like those are the messages that are getting set up that we're, that we're seeing the criticisms of the first two acts and on the one hand what's good is we get to the end he didn't learn a goddamn thing he died no he didn't 
as but he I think lives. his family didn't. I'll get into that. Well, his his family he died as he lived though. He dies criticizing the human body for being fragile, being poorly constructed. Yeah, because he got shot, and it was all mm-hmm. his own fault, right? Yeah. He and he couldn't take any responsibility for anything that happened in this movie. No, he's he's an asshole. He right? is an asshole, and I I really loved that because usually you get your protagonist, and by the end he learns something, and everything's great, and then on we move. And that's not what we got here. We get this character, this is who he is, and because of who he was, this is the destructive <coughs> path that he went on, and here's and he ended, he died as he lived, and I I thought that was great. Well, unfortunately, the counter to that is. What am I left with as somebody watching the movie? Like, mm-hmm. he was critical of all this stuff, and he embodied all that stuff, so he got punished for not being reflective of all of these things. He got punished for all of the crimes that he was always critical of. So, yes? I don't know. <laughs> yes to what? So what it's, I mean, the yeah. message is clear? or, or... It feels, it, I, guess, I guess to me it, well, feel, it feels a little muddled because where we end up. I don't need resolution always when I see a movie, but I just don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to nail down, and I can understand now why some critics probably didn't like this upon initial viewing, right? Because it's a there's multi multiple layers here. Um, you talked about one about capitalism versus imperialism, right? So th- that is definitely there. In addition to that, though, you can look at it also about what made America great as well initially in their hard work and never give up attitude. So the West has th- thrived based on that gumption yeah. and that innovation. So we have this here. We have a guy who just keeps, you could, one could admire Ali and part of me does because as you already said, he died living the way he lived and he didn't give up. One thing got ruined. Didn't matter. He went to go do something else. He went to try again. That didn't work. I'm still going to try again. I'm still going upstream. He yep. did not give up until his death. And that speaks to the heart of what made the West strong, especially when you get back to the values that he seems to be clamoring for back in the good old when innovation really was thriving in America. I mean, we could talk about society today. Yeah, we have a lot of technological advances today, but what really is America thriving today as it did before? I mean, Technology is great now, but I think innovation was even better before. Almost now I find that it's almost like a comment that innovation now is not for the better of humanity. It's Mm. about capitalism, right? It's about making money. Whereas before, it was about... I know the American dream was about anyone could come in and get rich if they worked hard enough and had the imagination, right? That's part of what this is here. But But before, innovation was also about the betterment of humanity. I'm of the opinion where that's less impactful now it's less of a truth now than it used to be well i mean that's interesting that you bring that up because i think ali would have agreed with you that character would have agreed with what you're saying he wasn't motivated by capitalism obviously because there wasn't any monetary gain to be had here but he was motivated he thought he was motivated by the betterment of humanity when he accomplished his goals out in the jungle there and let's say he made humanity better he wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. That's capitalism, right? Kind of greed. So did But, but then so this is were, a man who's still tainted by capitalism and he didn't know it. And that's part of his downfall. Well, I mean, yeah, if he was, he definitely didn't know it because that is who he is. But what I'm saying, you know what you're saying is um 
you know, if you go back century or two or three to the development of, of North America and, you know, inventions, you know, for the betterment of humanity, whether it's the invention of uh, the light bulb or the steam engine or things like that, even though they furthered civilization in ways that we, we can't list here, were motivated through gain of personal wealth. Yeah, so I mean, if I want to, even, you can even go back further and let's talk about Plato or Galileo. Well, but those guys didn't have a lot of. Uh, <laughs> if you want to go back to those guys, they didn't invent shit to sell. The, the scientists are usually motivated by, this, you know, just wanting the, the the passion of discovery for knowledge. Whereas the people who put that stuff to practical use to build yeah, they're shit, there for gain, to make power, money. yeah, power and money. And that's why I said like he is still. And that's why he's, a, in the end, he's a hypocrite. Well, it may, because he's the confluence of those two things. He's the inventor who wants to discover shit for, just for discovery's sake, for knowledge's sake. But he also wants to take advantage of his inventions to further his own goals without knowing it. Yes. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, bringing a, a phrase back from our Superman podcast last time, he's a product of that society. He's a failed product of that capitalistic society and he doesn't know it yeah but again there's so many layers here there's also another thing the significance of going upstream i mentioned before how he's trying to seem to be chase he's trying to run away from something as well so he seems to be going upstream he's always going in the opposite direction as i said creating ice from fire which seems to be an opposite of what made humanity thrive in the first place he's going upstream just like what is it the trout go upstream to give birth because he i think he says in this movie no going downstream is only death upstream is life because that's where trout is it trout or right. salmon yeah. salmon salmon or the trout or forget which, uh, which i one think it is. Uh, no i think it's the trout yeah they go upstream back to their birthplace that's, so they can give birth the they have the reference you're making here uh just sorry I, you're making the seinfeld reference right where the Salmon go upstream and the trout go. <laughs> no, I'm not. that didn't even occur to me. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anyways, but you get what I'm saying. He's yeah. driven. He he's driven by that urge, that and that's a naturalistic, primal urge of survival. Part of me admires Ali for this, even though he's a douchebag. I actually admire this guy, and I'm glad he didn't learn a lesson. Mm-hmm. Even though he treated his family like shit, he didn't. He had the family for the wrong reasons. This is a guy you really shouldn't have a family. Uh, You're right. He opinion. should be on this. This is a guy who should have been on his own and not inflict this on close yeah. loved ones. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, if he's saying going upstream is life instead of death, he's maybe still has that another little nugget and layer running away from his what he's saying. Well, I can't watch America die. I can't watch my mom die. Maybe he is scared of his own mortality. So he's driven naturally driven to keep going upstream i don't know just just a thought but it's the opposite of what life's institution is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so again he doesn't like institutions but what geniuses are really handcuffed by institutions anyways like the people who usually innovate are usually the ones who break free of those institutions some of the time not all the time but some of the time yeah well they they can be and what's ironic is sometimes those are the that's where new institutions get created from, are those new innovations. I mean, 
just in modern times here, if you want to think about technology where we're, we're all beholden to technology, where a lot of the stuff we're using, whether it's our phones or our, our computers now, I mean, those were created by people who were breaking free from the institutions. They were they were guys who were kind of rebelling against what, what was happening before. Right. Um, so, I mean, and they created it, these new shackles for us. Yes. And so Ali's just doing what they did. And he thinks of himself as a pioneer. But then again, he did shackle everybody there uh, to the horror nightmare that was his cooling machine, which ended up destroying everything. Yeah. I don't know if if you read into this at all. I kind of came into this as I went through the movie there and he, you know, going upstream... And as he sort of loses his sanity, you know, for anybody listening who's read Heart of Darkness or has seen Apocalypse Now, I saw him as the, the Kurtz yeah. character yes. from, from that story, right? Yeah, very similar. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was interesting as well. Somebody uh, who's gone native, if you will, right? He's, he's just, he loses it and he keeps pushing against the natural flow of things. That's the other, that's the other way of looking at going upstream. He's mm-hmm. going against the natural flow of things. Yes. Is he... Maybe that's a commentary on, on civilization or on life. I mean, entropy is the tendency of things to move to a lower state of energy or disorganization. And he's fighting against that. He's fighting against that, which is what life does, and that's what people do, and that's what civilization does. Yeah, so maybe he's just scared. Maybe yeah. his, his mother's death just traumatized him to a point where he's just scared of that one facet that he cannot innovate from so he keeps going upstream maybe that's just the way he's dealing with it and that definitely and i'd say that's definitely true so what does that say about the rest of us like that's the commentary on life on civilization but it drives him nuts what does that mean about the rest of us we're fucked (laughs) i don't know Okay. <laughs> it's a good question. A explanation, it, I guess. It, it's it's that that's like saying asking me what's the meaning of life. That's a good question. Hey, I don't we're know tackling if I can the big topics on the on the show. <laughs> yeah, hey, I'm not changing the world by myself here. Yeah, it's a good question, man. I don't know if I can uh, I can answer that. But what I would like to ask you is, I do before we end this thing, I do want to touch upon the acting in this movie, especially Harrison Ford. Again, some people thought that his performance was overrated. What did you think of his performance? You know what? I honestly feel that he was in a little bit over his head here. There's a lot to chew on with this role. And as much as I am a fan of Harrison Ford, I mean, as an actor, actor, I don't think he had enough, had or has enough skill or talent to tackle a role of, of of this much complexity. Harrison Ford's a natural on screen. He has lots of charisma. He's easy to watch. And within a certain range, he's very, very good. I mean, he obviously he's been very good at some of the things that he's done. He's elevated things that he's done. I mean, if you think about, you know, Indiana Jones isn't Indiana Jones without Kim because of, you know, his charisma and able, you know, his ability to elevate a very simple role into something that's larger than life. But give him something. But this here has a lot of nuance, a lot of complexity. And while I thought that he was capable here, and there were some scenes that he did very, very well in, overall, unfortunately, I think that he didn't quite didn't quite accomplish what the movie needed him to accomplish. 
I partially agree. I think you might be a bit too harsh on... I really wanted him... I really, really wanted to like him a lot more here because this is such a departure for him. It is a departure, but I think... I just want to ask you, is part of you kind of just... Because he's such an asshole and douchebag. Do you think that because of who the character is, do you think that hurts how someone interprets his performance? It might hurt how someone interprets his importance or or his performance, but not me because I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure. someone. It's not someone and Harry on the podcast here. <laughs> it should be. I that, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Let's rename it that way. <laughs> someone and Harry. Some, some <laughs> it's like just like uh, Doug Gilmore and the rest of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is he like a cricket player? Or... <laughs> nice job. Uh, no, I, I, I like an asshole protagonist because that's a risk. It's hard to get away with an asshole protagonist who also doesn't turn into a cool, nice guy by the end. I really appreciate that type of character. I wanted him to be better in this role, and I I just think he didn't quite get there. It wasn't a total failure, but I think it wasn't a complete Uh, success. I'm not going to completely disagree with you. I just think you're just a tad too harsh. I think he did a great job. This isn't a tour de force performance, but I think it's something that should be recognized as one of Harrison Ford's, you could argue, best performance or one of the best performances he's ever given. I like it a lot better than than Witness, I'll tell you that right now. Witness was a little bit more, you know, straight and even. Here, I felt he showed a little bit more range. Ali doesn't have a lot of range to begin with. As we said, he's unable to self-reflect. But I still saw some moments of compassion from Harrison Ford playing this character. And I think Harrison Ford in his interviews about this uh, movie, he says unfortunately the one thing they didn't capture well enough in the movie was the language in the book for the character. And I think that hurt it a little bit, he thinks, and I and I agree. Because Ali is so, I wouldn't say one-dimensional because there's so many layers there, but it is very difficult to portray that on screen. And I think there are elements, there's subtle elements there. There is some nuance there to Harrison Ford's performance. That's just what there I look are. at. No, no, I, I agree that there are. I think there's more, you know, when when you get to a, a role this nuanced, it really comes down to facial expressions, inflections in speech, little looks like it's really, really small, small, small stuff. Okay, and, but uh, I'm going to counter you with this. In reality, you know, this is funny. Harrison Ford, a long time ago, he said, and I agree with you, Harrison Ford's not the greatest actor in the world. He's just a good leading man. But the one thing that stands out for me is Harrison Ford, he keeps mentioning this in some of his earlier interviews when he was trying to make it through Hollywood. He was kind of like a a busboy in one movie, one of his earlier movies. And studio boss brought him in and said, you know, the minute I brought in uh, Tony Curtis, I knew he was a star. But when I see you playing the busboy, I see you playing a busboy, not a movie star. Harrison Ford's response was, I thought I was supposed to be playing a busboy. (laughs) And he's right. And he's right. And it's a great comeback. But no, but here, so now let let me finish. In reality, when we talk about, say, crazy people or serial killers or murderers and stuff like that, crazy people or eccentrics, sometimes they're not the most obvious. They're not going to come in with facial tics and obvious trademarks that this guy's got a problem. Sometimes it's going to be the guy who's normal. I think he still brought that sense of you could still see something behind the eyes in this performance. But he wasn't obvious with it, and I appreciated that. Because other actors would make it stand out saying, I need to show something that's going to make this guy seem more crazy, that he's more unhinged. But 
just like Michael Douglas was in the game, I didn't see him kind of like when he started to get unhinged, starting doing like weird facial tics and shit like that. He just, he was just kind of plain, played it straight and narrow. And he says, I just want to pull back the curtain, you know, and I'm really, really, you know, upset right now, or I forget the line and stuff like that. I know the I know the line. You're yeah. About. And I thought Harrison did this here consistently. And I always got the sense that he was unhinged. Something he is psychotic. Something's not right with his brain. He's eccentric. But he didn't change and deviate from that. And that's something to be admired of the character. And I can't fault Harrison Ford's performance because that's who the character is. If you understand what I'm meaning. You're, looking, you for, yeah. you're looking for something more subtle and say, I need some facial tics. I need some more emotions. No, no, I'm not no, saying no. you're saying tics, but you're looking for something else from an actor. Whereas in reality... Just based on what Harrison Ford's saying, I'm playing this character. I'm not trying to play, bring in something else so I can be obvious to the audience. But that's, it's not about being obvious to the audience. It's about being not obvious to the audience. I mean, you, you, you bringing up Michael Douglas in the game, I think is actually a good example because completely you buy it, right? And he doesn't do anything obvious in that movie. He plays it totally. I, I couldn't pick out from that performance what made it work because you shouldn't be able to. But when you can start to pick out the things that don't work, again, I'm not saying it, he it was not a disaster. He was good. Uh, Harrison was good in this movie. I think Harrison Ford does a is a better fit for roles where the character calls for more stability and can benefit from a deadpan delivery. Like Indiana Jones, for example, can kind of be a little. Uh, it's hard to hard to describe, but be a bit more everyman and and be a bit cool under pressure, but still a man of action if you know i i understand what you're saying and yeah that suits harrison ford best because that's what we mainly see him and that's why i appreciate this role because it's yeah. drastically well, I, different i appreciate it I, I and i'm the same i appreciate it because i mean it is a huge departure for him and i really appreciate that he you know that he was chosen for the role and that he did he definitely stretched his barriers here and, and he and he succeeded in a lot of ways there's no question for me there but uh, you know, I'm I am left wondering what somebody who had a, who has a little bit more skill might have been able to do the role. It might have made the movie work a bit better in some of the places where it didn't. Here, I could see Jack Nicholson in this role, but I think he'd bring a too obvious level of craziness. I agree. To it. It, that, I and I do agree with you there. It that would have been too, way too much. I mean, it might have been fun to watch, but too much. You know, because I brought up Apocalypse Now. You know, Martin Sheen was uh, might be a guy that would have been an interesting choice for something like this. Because not that he's you know some you know, much more fantastic actor, but some tendencies about him that might be interesting. You can believe a guy sort of sliding into madness without really knowing it. Whew, I thought you were going to recommend your go-to uh, hero, Arnie. <laughs> this no, is an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle, of course. Yeah, well, why? I mean, how wouldn't that work? <laughs> no, anything. Jeff Bridges is my go-to hero, as as you know, uh, as unfortunately. Liam Neeson is to yours. Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't have the man crush that you do. That's true. Nobody has a man crush on anybody like I have on Jeff Bridges. That is true. To each their own. Okay, so I think this is a good point to wrap it up here. So, can you just give me your so Jeff? Can you give me your final thoughts on Guido Coast as a newbie? To this film, did you enjoy it? Do you recommend it? What are its strengths, weaknesses? Do you think that it works for today's modern audience? And do you think it's a rare antiquity and a gem? I enjoyed the Mosquito Coast. I didn't do any research on it or anything like that, so I think 
you know, unfortunate to learn that it did not receive a great critical or commercial uh, reception. There's a lot going on here. And I love movies that have a lot going on without really, really spelling it out for you. Like they weren't, there, there wasn't too much exposition here. I really appreciate that. Again, parallels drawn to one of my favorite movies, Apocalypse Now, and one of my favorite books, Heart of Darkness by extension. Some cool stuff happening here with, I love movies that have layers you can kind of pick apart. So yes, I, I enjoy the movie because you can kind of dig into aspects of it. Definitely some problems here. The third act starts to fall apart. There's some items, as we talked about, where the plot just interferes with the character study because it feels like they couldn't figure out where they're where to go next, and that maybe gives us maybe a slightly unsatisfying conclusion. Does it hold up today? Do I recommend it? I recommend watching this movie. There's there's a lot going on here, and it's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, does it hold up? It's got its problems. You know, it does have its problems, but is it a rare antiquity? I'm going to say yes. This is a rare antiquity. Go watch it. Dig into it. Bring up some of those gems that you might find there. Yes, I, I completely agree. As a kid, you know, or a youngster, if you're a 13 year old listening to this podcast, first things first is get out. Second thing is um... <laughs> get out. <laughs> get out. The second thing is is yeah, it won't. No, no young adult, nor not too many young adults, would enjoy sitting through. But it is relative to today's audience. I think those themes of, as you mentioned, capitalism versus realism, life, death birth, innovation versus nature. This is a great character study with a lot of layers. And there's a lot, you know, it's it's a timeless story in a sense, especially in the age we live in. Unless we're getting into a utopian society here where every, everything is hunky-dory and there are no issues in it, this movie will always be relevant. It's a movie, as I said, because it doesn't appeal to young adults or young kids. Probably won't understand, but as an adult, I, I loved it because... There is so much going on. I enjoyed the character study. I enjoyed the performances. I mean, I don't really know why Helen Mirren decided to just roll, because she didn't really have a lot to do, but everybody else was pretty good. I agree with you, the third act with the militants coming into fray, into the fray there is uh, wishy-washy. Again, probably just for a plot device to destroy the town, get the town destroyed. Probably could handle that a bit better. But overall, it doesn't be, it's a high recommendation for me. It's definitely a rare antiquity, especially for those people who are Harrison Ford fans. I think a lot of people have skipped this movie. It's not on anybody's radar in mainstream pop culture. Find it, watch it. I think Ford gives a great performance, a definite departure from what you're used to, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Yep. So that does it for today's episode, episode six on the Mosquito Coast. So, Jeff, care to tell us what you have in store for us next? We're digging deep into the treasure trove here. Next time on a podcast of Rare Antiquities, we are going down under and then taking a left turn. The New Zealand classic, The Quiet Earth. The Quiet Earth. Yeah. I have never even heard of it. Right on, buddy. <laughs> awesome. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. This is exciting. Yeah. Yep. No, that'll be good. Yep. Like, don't tell me anything. I, just, I, don't even, I want to go in cold. I'm going in cold. Don't worry. You won't know who's in it even after you've done watching it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no. This will be good. This will be like when they were filming the Mosquito Coast and they found the Mayan ruins by accident. That's what this movie is. Okay. No, that's... You don't even know what's there. Yeah. Uh, piquing my interest. It sounds like fun. Anyways, I hope you guys all had a fun listen to uh, our dissection of this movie. 
Jeff, uh, appreciate it. Until next time. All right, man. We'll talk to you again. All right. Cheers. Cheers.